Good evening, everyone. You're in the right place at the right time. This is Coast to Coast AM, blasting out of the Mojave Desert like a Scirocco, blazing across the land, slamming into your radio like a supercharged nanoparticle of unobtainium. Greetings from the boldest, bawdiest, most outrageous city in the world, the planetary capital of sun, fun, sin, sex, and secrets, my not-so-humble hometown, Las Vegas, Nevada. My name is George Knapp, your occasional host, designated driver of the airwaves, and moderator of tonight's upcoming cacophonous cavalcade of conversation. We're shaking out there. We have good stuff on tap for tonight. You know, earlier this year, back in the summer, I think it's July, we started reading and seeing snippets, bits and pieces, one or two videos on social media about some very strange events being reported in South America, more specifically in Peru. Villagers living out in the Peruvian Amazon in an area far removed from much of modern civilization were posting these videos on X and other social media showing these vague glimpses of what the locals said were attacks from the sky. Strange beings would swoop out of the sky always at night. They seemed to be wearing some sort of advanced body armor and these weird elongated helmets over their giant heads flying atop these little pads that were attached to their feet. Someone compared them to, I think, the Green Goblin from the Spider-Man movies. The locals had one heck of a nickname for them, though. In English, the name is Face Peelers. Because of what they had reportedly done to residents of that little town, within a matter of weeks, someone came up with a perfectly ridiculous debunking explanation. These are not face peelers or alien beings from the sky, as some suspected. These are illegal miners operating out in the jungle, and they're using jetpacks to scare everyone to get off their land. So that's it, you know, jetpacks. Nothing to see here, folks, because, you know, you can buy Joe's jetpacks just about anywhere. South American, Walmart, I guess, maybe 7-Eleven. Fortunately, a world traveler and adventurer who's had a longtime interest in unusual phenomenon in the skies not only knew that area of Peru, but could speak the local dialect. He'd spent many years down there, thought that this cover-up story didn't make much sense, so Tim Alberino and some of his colleagues decided to go check it out for themselves. Tim and his friends went out there after an arduous trip across continents and up the river, spoke to the locals, went to key locations, gathered information and video, and then came back. And tonight, we get to hear the first-hand account of that journey, what the Peruvian locals saw, what this might mean to all of us. Tim Alberino is my first guest tonight and joins us in just a few minutes, and I know you're going to be as captivated by this story as I was. In the second half tonight, a new biography of an overlooked, underappreciated, but essential part of the phenomenon known as Beatlemania. Mal Evans was a hulking presence in the lives of the Beatles. You've probably seen him in various photographs from back then. He was their roadie, their gopher, their bouncer and bodyguard, a friend, a confidant, a travel companion, and a musical collabor- collaborator. Uh, with John, Paul, George, and Ringo. Uh, The story of Mal Evans is gripping and funny and tragic, and it's finally getting its due thanks to writer Kenneth Womack, one of the world's leading journalistic authorities on the Beatles. Living the Beatles Legend is the name of his excellent new book, and we will dive right in two hours from now. Fun stuff, especially given that there's a renewed yet another resurgence in public interest in a band that is still selling millions of records more than 50 years after its demise. Sometime in the next 12 hours or so, it seems likely that a few powerful members of Congress, all of them Republicans, by the way, are going to gut some astonishing legislation 
that would have represented a huge step forward toward public understanding of the UFO mystery. The so-called Schumer Amendment has bipartisan support in the Senate, and it's likely to be cut out of the Defense Authorization Act. That's what we're hearing anyway. The bill called for the disclosure by the Pentagon and by defense contractors uh, of any suspected alien technology, any crash saucers, uh, metamaterials, bits and pieces of this and that, intact craft if they've got them, possibly bodies of the crew members, and any attempted reverse engineering programs carried out with government support. It's astonishing that the legislation was ever proposed or got this far. It is not a surprise that the defense industry and its Pentagon enablers would marshal their forces and use their muscle and their money to kill it. Of course they did. They will not give up these goods, not without a fight, not in a million years, not unless they're forced to do so. Maybe this defeat for transparency will set off a new wave of revelations from the whistleblowers who have been testifying behind closed doors on Capitol Hill, under oath, by the way. I hope so. In the meantime, assuming this amendment does get gutted sometime in the day ahead, I think we can be assured the public will not give up on this. I don't think this genie can be jammed back into the bottle. If you're interested in reading the names of the Congress members who've thwarted the will of the public at the behest of their campaign donors, the defense industry, we have an article by Chris Sharp on Liberation Times. It's posted on the Coast to Coast AM website. As usual, our webmaster, Jeremy Wells, and I have pulled together assorted items culled from news media around the world. We call it NAPS News. You can find it on the Coast to Coast AM website. The Liberation Times article is one of those stories. Also there, a story about an unknown object that crashed into a crater on the moon. China swears it isn't their spacecraft. Okay, so whose is it then? We're still uh, in November, of course, but Time Magazine has published what it calls the Top 100 Photos of 2023. The full article and all those photos are included on our site on this link, including one photo I know that will be of interest to our listeners. You'll know it when you see it. Remember the show we did months ago about how the public and animal lovers had pressured Congress into revamping the FDA's barbaric and worthless requirements requirements that animals be subjected to incredibly cruel experiments in the testing procedures for no benefit at all. The public spoke, Congress listened, they passed this law, but the FDA is so far thumbing its nose at Congress and at us a full year after this law was passed. So what's the deal, FDA? Get off your butts and follow the law. The story is there on Naps News, along with a couple of others, including a Beatles tale that you might be of interest in leading up to our second half guest tonight. While you're there on the website, check out how to become a Coast Insider. The cost is 15 cents a day if you subscribe for a year. It gives you access to a huge archive of programs and interviews, including the Art Bell Vault. Those are some classics. You can listen anytime you want, as often as you want. It's a good deal. So, too, is a subscription to George Norrie's Beyond Belief. That's the TV show hosted by George in which he interviews fascinating guests, similar to what he does so well here on the radio. And with that, let's assume the position. Bring in the dog and the cat and the family llama. Put on a pot of joe. Slide your bod into those warm flannel jammies and your toes into your best bunny slippers. Plop yourself down in a comfy spot. Turn down the lights and turn up the radio. Because in a moment, we're about ready to rumble. We got searching for the face of face peelers with Tim Alberino. I'm George Knapp, and this is Coast to Coast AM. Welcome back. Timothy Alberino is an explorer, world traveler, investigator of mysteries, lost cities, lost civilizations, hidden treasures, 
legendary creatures, occult conspiracies, and the occasional UFO tale. He's also a published author. I got to meet him a few years ago when I was invited to speak at this world-class conference in Branson, Missouri, and was pretty impressed with him right off the bat. He not only talks the talk, but walks the walk, literally, over mountains, through jungles, across rivers, as demonstrated by one of his most recent adventures into a remote part of the Peruvian Amazon in search of, quote, the face peelers. Tim, welcome back to Coast to Coast. George, very nice to talk with you tonight. Can you tell us where you are and what you're up to tonight? I got I got a feeling it's something exotic. <laughs> Not too exotic. I'm currently in Bozeman, Montana. That's where I live. Oh. Um, I did just get back from Guatemala, and that was uh, that was a, a bit exotic. Well, can you say what you're up to to give their? I just wanted to give our audience a flavor of the kind of adventures you go off on all the time. Well, I was uh, in Guatemala. I was uh, investigating the, uh, researching the Maya civilization, the mysterious Maya civilization, and uh, visiting some of those uh, sites in Guatemala that were uh, some of the most important uh, locations. Yeah, you're you're the real deal. I mean, you boots on the ground. You get out there and find this stuff. I mean, I I saw your initial posts about the Peruvian mystery a while back, and then I, I rewatched the video that you produced from your trip. It's just amazing stuff. Can you give us a sense of the end of July, we start seeing these videos and things popping up on social media. What grabs your attention about that story? And can you share with us why you're familiar with that area and those people? Well, that story, as you know, exploded on social media um, sometime around mid to end July. And it, it was so bizarre, and, and, and what made it go viral on social media is, are the videos that were captured in the villages. Now, it's important to understand that there's a, the, the, the initial video came out of a, a village called San Antonio de Pintuyacu, which is not far from Iquitos in the state of Loreto, in the Amazon region of Peru. Um, and uh, a young man named Christian from the village, the school teacher in the village captured um, captured a very chaotic scene at nighttime in which the villagers were running around in the jungle with their flashlights, discharging their firearms into the forest at uh, at unidentified, unseen assailants, and they were obviously very alarmed by what whatever it was that they were confronting. Some of the villagers made the astonishing claim that these that they were being assailed by extraterrestrials that there were incursions being made into into their village by these very strange entities um and so obviously that 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 kind of a story is going to is going to get legs on social media and then uh, and then in the aftermath in, in the in the ensuing weeks other stories started to emerge from basically the same area of the Peruvian Amazon generally speaking, uh, of different encounters with UFOs and strange things happening. For example, uh, during around the same period of time, there was a, a group of uh, a, uh, there was a there was a group of students who were in the jungle for whatever reason, for some project, and they all witnessed a strange being. There were multiple witnesses to this being who was walking through the jungle. Uh, again, at the same period of time in a different part of, uh, of that same region, but in a different area, uh, a villager, a couple of villagers were attacked by a craft, some sort of a craft 
that was apparently attempting to lift them off the ground using some sort of a beam, and they were able to escape. And then also you had incidents in which uh, villagers were, were hit with some kind of a laser beam by these strange assailants and, and sustained uh, various sorts of injuries. So all of this was going on in the same period of time. Uh, there was a video released uh, around this time from the city of, of Nauta, um, again, in the same region. And uh, this video was apparently, it, 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 it depicted some sort of phenomenon that was happening. And it, it, they were, there was a, it was, again, a very chaotic scene at night, and you could see something. They were training their flashlights on something, yelling, there it is, there it is. And that something, to me, as I analyzed the video, appeared to be a being of some sort. Um, and so all of this was uh, obviously very interesting to me, and, and it was all going viral all over social media, and, and my audience was asking me, begging me to go to Peru and investigate this, um, these strange goings-on. Now, um, I, when I was a young man, I lived in that region of the jungle. I lived up the river Masan, and uh, I lived with uh, a community, uh, an indigenous community, and, 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 and some of the people living up the river, Peruvians, and, and had some very interesting encounters myself up there. And I learned uh, the Spanish. I learned Spanish by living in the Peruvian Amazon. And so I speak their particular dialect. They call it Charapa. And Charapa is a mix of Spanish with Quechua. And it's, it's, a, it's a very interesting dialect. Um, and, and it just so happens that that's the kind of Spanish that I speak natively, or rather that I learned to speak. So um, it just seemed like everything was aligned for, for, for me to go and undertake this expedition and, and investigate. And, and I was waiting for someone to go and do it. Honestly, I really didn't want to. It, it seemed somewhat a little bit dangerous, and I didn't really have time because, as I just mentioned, I was in Guatemala, and I had this Guatemala trip coming, and I, I had this very small window of time that I had to that I had to make all of the um, make all of the arrangements for this for this extensive expedition. And but ultimately, it seemed that I was fated to do it. And nobody, nobody went and, and, and did an investigation. Uh, two police officers went from the city of Iquitos. They were, they were escorted by the Navy. Uh, they went to the village of San Antonio de Pintuyacu, and they conducted a piss-poor investigation. And they're the ones who concocted that ridiculous jetpack miner story that the Peruvian media ran with and then subsequently the media in the United States. Yeah, you know, what occurred to me, I didn't know what to make of those reports. Okay, it's out in the middle of the jungle, the Peruvian Amazon. These are villagers. I mean, they're not like living in grass huts, but they're not all that sophisticated. But they've got cell phones, they've got electricity, and, you know, they post these videos, and I don't know what to make of it. But when I heard the preposterous jetpack story, it, it really grabbed my attention. Someone's going to the trouble of making up a story to debunk this thing so no one pays attention to it. That made me more interested than ever, and I'm sure you probably had the same reaction. I had the very same reaction, and it, it did seem preposterous to me that 
first of all, we have when we talk about miners, we're talking about river miners, and the river miners are not very sophisticated people in the Amazon. And then there was some there was some talk of river miners being backed by cartel money. Okay, even if the river miners are backed with cartel money. Um, the idea, the notion that they're zipping around the Amazon jungle with jetpacks <laughs> and maneuvering through the trees at nighttime with jetpacks is 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 just absolutely ridiculous. And and I knew that that story was not true. Uh, there may have been some truth in my mind. I thought perhaps there's some some sort of uh, mundane explanation here, but it's not jet. It's not miners with state of the art jetpacks. That is not. The answer. So yes, that definitely um, was part of the equation in terms of uh, a, a driving force for me to go and investigate. It, it added to the mystery. So deciding to take take this trip. I mean, you seem it seems to be calling out to you the fact that you live down there, that you speak this particular dialect, that you know the area, that you can communicate one on one with the witnesses. It seems like the universe chose you for this job, but. As you said, it's a dangerous undertaking. You can't just go by yourself. We all know about cartel operations and and other uh, things that go on out there in Peru and in the Amazon. It is dangerous, I would think, for gringos to show up with cameras, start asking questions, and you're bringing guns and equipment. Uh, Somebody could get the wrong idea. There's no question about it. In fact, the cartels in Mexico, in order to instill terror in their rivals, they actually do cut faces off. And 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 we're the faces of their uh, of their rivals, of their victims. And so I, I was well aware before I went that this very well could be some sort of sophisticated cartel operation. And that was the worst case scenario, because um, I did obviously I did not want to have a run in with with the cartel, and it probably wouldn't have been a, the Peruvian cartel. It would have been the Colombian cartel or something like that operating in that part of Peru. You're not that far away from the border of Ecuador and Colombia there. And uh, and they do run drugs up there. Absolutely, they're running drugs up there. So that was my greatest concern, that and malaria, frankly. I've had malaria five times. I've contracted oh. it every time from this region of the jungle. This is a red zone for malaria. And then I've also had yellow fever once, but but I, I didn't really want to get malaria either. But, you know, so this is why I was a bit reluctant to go. Um, and then again, also the the constraint on, on my time. Yeah, but also it's expensive. I mean, to travel down there, to get to a remote region like that, you can't go by yourself. Um, and as we're going to learn, I mean, you wanted to bring something along as a goodwill gesture to these villagers who were undergoing some difficulties that we can delve into, but it's expensive. So you got some help from somebody, a, a church, I believe. I did, yes, that's I did. I uh, the, the expedition was not cheap. Um, because the only way to do it, to bring all of the supplies that we wanted to bring, we had to get a big boat. And, and, um, so I, I reached out to some friends of mine from a church, conduit church, pastor Darren Tyler, uh, my friend, Jamie Brandenburg, and a, and a, just a wonderful group of men from that church, uh, were more than willing, eager, in fact, to help me undertake this expedition. They wanted to help fund it. And so once I was able to secure some funding, um, and I co-funded it, and once I was able to secure some, some funding that allowed me to make the investment, um, I really didn't have any excuse at that point. So uh, I, I was able, by the way, to contact the village. I made contact with, the, with Christian, the, the, the same young man who filmed the incidents in the village, 
Um, I'll tell you what. Hold on, Tim. We're going to have to take a break. When we come back, I want you to tell the story about what Tim, uh, what this guy Christian told you that that sort of cemented the deal and made you realize you needed to go down there. We're talking to Tim Alberino about the face peelers. Credence takes us into the break. Run through the jungle. So, Tim Alberino, you're gathering information as much as you can before you head off on this journey into the Peruvian Amazon. You connect with a guy named Christian who lives in this village where this action has been happening. What did he tell you? Yeah, I want to give credit to uh, ufologist Ronnie Burnett. From He's a Brazilian ufologist who, who connected me with Christian. That's how I was able to get in contact with right. the village. And when I talked to Christian, I found out that – well, I found out a couple of things. First of all, I found out that the – Villagers were still very anxious. They were they were in a state of heightened vigilance, and and that they had not been going out to their farms. All of these villages in the Amazon, uh, they have little farms. They call them chakras, uh, which are located um, you know within a mile around the village, and uh, probably quarter mile around the village, and. They. This is where they get their food. This is where they gather. They grow and gather their food, their sustenance. And because of of what had been occurring in the village, they stopped going out to their chakras um, for fear of of being assailed by these beings, these people. And uh, and also they were not going and doing the other things that they normally do for money. They go in and they get they they cut wood down and float it down the river and sell it in the marketplace in Iquitos and so forth. And uh, when he told me that, I realized that um, it would it, it it would be uh, it would be good to, in addition to doing the research in the village, all, it would be it would be uh, I thought necessary to supply the village as well with food and medicine, um, and then also with some strategic technology uh, that would help them to capture the phenomenon should it should it happen again and also help them defend themselves because i learned that the men of the village were every single night they were staying up to two three in the morning walking the perimeter of the village with their shotguns and flashlights and uh, so that sort of changed the expedition a little bit for me it it, it gave me another um it, it changed the mission set so that I wasn't just going to investigate. It was also kind of a humanitarian thing at this point, and I was going to go up there and and uh, and also su- su- um, supply the village to provision the village. So uh, what does – you get on the phone with Christian, and he fills you in on on, the, on sort of the, the villages on lockdown. They're, they're on alert. This is not um, a joke to them. It's not a, a, a hoax that somebody made up. Everybody has seen this stuff. Everybody who lives there is is aware of it, right? Yes, definitely. So, all right, how do you get there? Where do you have to fly to? Does Iquitos have an airport, or you got to fly somewhere else and then drive to Iquitos and then get a boat? Well, you can, in some circumstances, you can fly directly to Iquitos. Normally, you're going to have to pass through Lima, capital city of Peru, and then fly from there to Iquitos. Iquitos is located in the northeastern part of the country, in the Amazon Basin. In fact, the Amazon River begins there at Iquitos. Um, and I flew into to Iquitos. I was accompanied, by the way. When I decided that I was going to undertake this expedition, I contacted a friend of mine named Doug Thornton. And Doug was, was a, an, an, an infantry Marine and um, fought in Iraq. 
and also he he's an ex DHS uh, a quick response team operator and a very capable capable guy and I yeah. and I discussed my plans with him and he and and he and he wanted to come and I was very glad to be accompanied by Doug because of the aforementioned um, risk and, and danger. Yeah, he looks uh, like he knows his business. He certainly does. <laughs> and so Doug and I, uh, well, when I got to Iquitos, I was able to charter a boat, a riverboat, previous actually to landing in Iquitos. I chartered a riverboat and uh, large enough to accommodate me and my crew. I was also met in Iquitos by the Apu of the village. The Apu is the chief of the village, the highest authority in the village. Um, his, his name is Jairo Reategui, and, and a couple of other villagers, including Christian, accompanied, accompanied me up the river on the riverboat from Iquitos to the village of San Antonio de Pintuyacu. De I should also say that I had an official invitation to go. Once I contacted the village, I, I recorded a message um, with my intentions and what I and and uh, what I intended to do in the village, and and um, Christian relayed that message um, to the uh, to the chief and and the other members uh, of their governing body there in the village, and they all um, they all decided not only. Uh, were they going to approve my visit? They were welcoming me with open arms and and sent me a letter of, of welcoming and and so and then also met me in Iquitos to accompany up the river. So um, I was by the time I got to Iquitos, I was being invited, eagerly invited to their village to conduct this investigation. Remembering that um, no one had had up until this point gone and done such an investigation, um, except for a couple of police officers who uh, again concocted that ridiculous story. And so why did the cops show up? Because of the story of an alleged abduction attempt? No, no that's a good question. Um, the villagers uh, were demanding, they were, they were pleading with the government in Iquitos to send the Navy, to send the Navy to protect, to protect them at nighttime. Because as you mentioned earlier, these incursions only happen at night. Um, and... The only reason that the police showed up was because there was an there was an attempted abduction on a 15 year old girl named Talia. Uh, these two assailants attempted to abduct her. Um, it was witnessed. It was it was witnessed by her neighbors. Multiple villagers witnessed this event, and um, they were unable to do so. And we can get in, get into that in a little bit the details of that story. Um, and she was left with uh, two lacerations on her neck from the confrontation, and she was in a state of uh, chemically-induced disorientation for some time. Her face was swollen for uh, for eight days, and so the police had to come and, and conduct an investigation because of the attempted abduction and assault on her. But the Navy That's never why. showed up. The, the Navy escorted the police officers. They had a Navy escort. They came in a Navy boat, um, but the Navy did not conduct the investigation rather that these two police officers conducted the investigation and that was it that was that was all that they did and the villagers continued to plead for help from the provincial government and uh, they made some videos that 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 appeared online they they went down to Iquitos they went down the river they went and met with the governor and 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 asked for help and basically what they were asking for was was in, was was armed was the military to come and protect them. Um, that's how serious this was. Um, and so, uh, to make a long story short, uh, 
Uh, it took two days to get up the river. Uh, we went up the river Nanai, and then and then we transitioned up the Pintuyaku, the river Pintuyaku, and uh, it was a two-day journey into deep up into the Amazon, um, and uh, eventually reached the village of San Antonio de Pintuyaku. And when we got there, um, this heightened this heightened vigilance became manifest because as soon as we as soon as we approached the village, uh, we were met on the shore by a small army of guys with shotguns. Yeah, and it's all the video. Uh, these, guys were, <laughs> these guys were were locked and loaded when we got there. They weren't there to ward us off or to prevent us from coming. Quite the opposite. They were there to welcome us into the village. But this is how they they all walk around. They've all been walking around night and day uh, with their shotguns. Um, so you, and so, you, as soon as I pulled up to the village, I understood, you know, that this is this is for real. These people are taking this very seriously. So you met with the chief, then you, you get the, uh, you know, you presented them with uh, rice and beans and other supplies, and you're you're welcomed in there. You, you're you have the freedom to walk around and talk to everybody. Give me the broad strokes of the story that emerges that you learn from them. How long this has been going on? How often it's happened? And what exactly they were seeing at night? So when we went to San Antonio de Pintuyaco, I went with an open mind. I knew that the jetpack miner story was was preposterous, but I was open to I was open to uh, any scenario, including uh, cartel involvement, including perhaps deep state type activity with advanced technology, and even an alien, some kind of an alien incursion. I was I was I had not made up my mind about anything. Um, and so uh, when we, uh, when I began to, to, after the warm reception we received uh, in the village, um, I began to conduct these interviews with the individuals who encountered these assailants. And I'm just going to call them assailants because to this day, I'm not sure exactly uh, who they are. But the story that began to unfold is that... Um, as we said earlier, in, a, in about sometime in mid-July, these strange assailants began to make incursions into the village. And th- right off the bat, the first details that emerged were how these assailants moved through the sky. Because they weren't coming in a, in a typical fashion that you might expect cartels to just sort of creep into the village Rather, these assailants, these individuals were flying into the village. The villagers would see them flying in the sky. They would, what they would see were small disks, uh, which I later learned were, were sort of hoverboard, circular hoverboard platforms. They would see these disks silently floating over their village and maneuvering around the village and then they would land they would watch the they would they couldn't see the the men on the on the platforms unless they trained a flashlight on them then then they would see them on top but the platforms had lights multicolored lights they also had floodlights and and they would they would land in the openings in the jungle around the village now sometimes these assailants would disembark from these from these platforms from these hover, hoverboard platforms leave them in the jungle and walk into the village sometimes they would float into the village and i i i heard 
several testimonies of guys who swore to me that they discharged their firearms at tall beings dressed from head to foot in black armored body suits with large helmets, as you described earlier, uh, sort of oblong helmets uh, with uh, almond-shaped yellow-tinted eye lenses. And they, they would dis- uh, one gentleman in particular was very adamant with me when he was telling me this, that he had his flashlight trained on one of these guys, and, and this individual, this guy, was floating off the ground he wasn't on one of these hoverboard platforms. Rather, he had disembarked and had floated into the village because apparently on their footwear they have these small discs. So I don't, I don't want to confuse people with the platforms and the discs, that the apparatuses connected to their footwear. Those are two separate things. I think that they, they, maybe they snap into the, di- into the platforms and they can fly away at high rates of speed. But when, they're, when, they, when they disembark from the platforms, they're still apparently able to float, uh, they say, about a meter off the ground. And this particular individual who I interviewed said that he discharged his 16-gauge shotgun point blank at one of these guys, and it knocked him back on his butt. But then he, he quickly popped back up into the air. He, he hopped up into the air and, and began floating again uh, on, on these discs uh, on the bottom of his shoes. Um, I, heard, uh, I heard that from a couple of guys in the village that apart from the circular platforms, that the assailants can float around uh, just by, by, by means of whatever uh, technological apparatus that they have attached to their footwear. You, you interviewed one. You interviewed one lady who said that she saw him jump over her, her house. Yes, yes. She was telling me how they are, they are able to to leap into the air with these just with their footwear, uh, jump over the house and then hover a, a meter off the ground. Now, when they presumably snap into these circular hoverboards, then they can move at high rates of speed. They can fly up into the air. They can do all kinds of things. They're very dexterous on the hoverboard. So we're talking about, you know, we're, we're, I'm hearing stories out there of, of everybody, by the way, everybody saw this circular. I'm calling them hoverboards, um, but, but these are way more advanced based on their capabilities than any of the hoverboard technology we have in the commercial sector. These are not the hoverboards that you see on YouTube uh, those things fly for 10 minutes. They're exceedingly noisy, <clears throat> and they can move at pretty pretty high rates of speed, but they cannot maneuver the way uh, that these that all of the witnesses told me that these guys can maneuver when they're snapped into these boards. Uh, they can maneuver between the trees. Um, they can shoot up uh, into the sky, and and everybody told me they're silent. They they can hover above in the air and they're silent until they accelerate then there's a some sort of a almost like a compressed air sound is what it was described to me as um and so right away as these testimonies started as these stories has started to come out um uh, doug and i our first reaction was my god we're dealing with we are dealing with the cartel members some sort of some sort of uh, advanced technology possibly being um, 
employed by by cartels or something, and that was frightening to us. We, by the way, I took um, I took some security with me. I took a, a two active duty uh, Peruvian Navy operators with me. Those were my guys. They were my security, and I took them uh, with me to the village. Uh, they were armed, and uh, after you know the first hour of, of conducting these investigations, we had to go back to the boat and sit down and come up with a security plan just in case we're dealing with cartels. Yeah. Um, what do we do if we're confronted with cartels and so forth? But then we went back into the village after lunch and continued to conduct these investigations. And it became, it became obvious to us at that point that we're not dealing with cartels. We're not dealing with cartels um, and we're not dealing with any sort of a conventional um, agent here. We All are right. dealing with something very mysterious. All right, Tim Alberino, uh, we're going to have to take another break. When we come back, you can explain why you came to that conclusion. I mean, the body armor, for example, and then the shape of these helmets, uh, the shape of the heads under the helmets, I think that's kind of a giveaway. And then, of course, there's something else up in the sky that the villagers are seeing. We're going to get into all that in our next segment here. Fascinating stuff with Tim Alberino. We go into the break with Sinatra, a song he wrote that includes a little visit to Peru, Fly Me to the Moon. 